Welcome to The Good Lawyer. This is a 2022 copyrighted podcast of the Young Lawyers Division of the State Bar of Georgia, where we discuss what makes a good lawyer. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Wildy President Ron Daniels, and today on the show, we're excited to have Brandon Bullard, founder and principal lawyer at the Bullard Firm. He's going to talk to us about what makes a good lawyer. Brandon, welcome to The Good Lawyer. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. I wanted to give just a little bit of your background, and I would put in a plug here that uh, I think this is the first time we've had on the podcast somebody that I actively am litigating against, so it's a little bit of a, a different setup, but you are a criminal appellate expert, in, in my opinion. Um, I don't know if you would use the word expert or not, but you have done probably as much criminal appellate work in the state of Georgia as anybody else practicing currently. Um, you went to Emory School of Law. You're a past chair of the appellate practice law section. You're a longstanding member of GACTL uh, and have done a lot of work on the, the Amicus Curie Committee. And I happen to know that you also enjoy barbecuing, uh, which makes you A plus in my book. You know, I'm, I agree. I wouldn't, not sure I would use expert, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to, to, to talk or eat barbecue. So. You know, if, that, if that's what gets me in the door, I'll, I'll take that too. Well, I'm going to hit you with the loaded question. Brandon, what makes a good lawyer? I, I agree. That's a loaded question because, you know, we've got to figure out what, what good is. Uh, I won't spin my wheels getting philosophical, but as I think about it, I boil it down to about four things. Diligence, uh, humility, humanity, and self-care. Diligence, I, I think, has got to be the big one. I mean, and I mean, not just in the, the rules of ethics kinds of diligence. Um, when you come out of law school, uh, what I realized is you have sort of a dull set of legal tools. You, you spent you know, three years forging those tools, trying to hammer them, get them as sharp as possible. But you, you discover pretty quickly that you're trying to do surgeon's work with lumberjack's tools. So much of what we do, you know, is, is making fine distinctions and making finer slices of fact, finer and finer slices of law. And you're sort of looking for those subtle points for the least move, the least cut that's going to get your client where your client wants to go. And you, you spend the rest of your career trying to get those tools as sharp as you possibly can. I said I'm an appellate expert. I certainly didn't start off that way. I remember the first few appeals I threw up and I was really confident. I was like, you know, I've got this. I know the cases. I know the facts. And, and you know, I, I worked hard, but um, I sent them up and I got those affirmances back. And I'm like, well, damn, why is that? I had a case that I thought was sufficiency of the evidence on drugs and a bunch of people in the house and my client didn't even live there. Cops burst in, there's a warrant, everybody sort of scatters. And uh, my client ends up in a room that happens to, to have the drugs in it, or at least that's the point I was making. Where similar facts were held not to have been sufficient as a matter of law to sustain the conviction. But, and I thought, well, in my case, you know, my case is on all fours with those cases. And I got the affirmance back saying, oh, no, it's not. No, his, like the fact that he, he took this action, he, he, the jury could have inferred that he went to that room, that he knew the drugs were there, that it was enough to, to get the, the state over the threshold for minimum sufficiency. But, you know, as a, as a young lawyer, ah, I've, I've got this. And, you know, first it was the, the ego bruising of it coming back going, oh, well, I, I don't have this. And then you start to spend a lot of time going, you know, why is it I didn't have this? What did I miss? And I think that's the, that's the diligence thing. It's not the winning where you sharpen your tools. It's the losing. Read the U.S. Supreme Court cases. Read the 11th Circuit cases. Absolutely read every 
Georgia Supreme Court opinion, every court of appeals uh, a published opinion that you can get your hands on, you've got to spend a lot of time sharpening your tools. And you, they will never be as sharp as they can be. There, there is no perfectly sharp scalpel. The cut can always be finer. Second thing, humility. That's where we get in trouble because none of us is good enough to, to make a case something it's not. The facts are what they are. And the law, after you've done the diligent work of figuring out exactly what it is and, and what, how it interacts with your facts, often is what it is. It's not, there's not a lot of room to, to change the law. So what you have to accept is that an adverse judgment is not a referendum on the quality of your work, it, especially if on the criminal side. You get affirmances, not because uh, your, your work is bad, but because no matter how good it was, you can't change the case. Uh, but the other thing is I, I think we get in our own way a lot by trying to convince our audience, our client, our court, opposing counsel, uh, the legislature, whomever, that we're, that we're smart or that we're good at this or that we're clever, that we're charming, whatever the, the heart of your vanity happens to be. And um, I learned this, sadly, sort of uh, embarrassingly late. I was working on an amicus brief in, in a case that dealt with the interaction of the parole board's powers and the interpretation of the grant of a, of a pardon, of a limited pardon, obligations placed on people who were convicted of sex offenses. Uh, I was you know, deep into this amicus brief uh, in support of the position that, that Gactel was taking. And I was driving somewhere and listening to NPR. And uh, then this show that I'd never heard of came on. It's called um, Cannonball. And they were interviewing Patton Oswalt. I don't know if you know the comedian Patton Oswalt. I'm a, I'm a fan. Uh, so anyway, he was talking about the evolution of his career. And he got to this point where he was saying in his early years, he was busy trying to convince the audience how smart he was. He wanted them to, to see how clever he was. And, and that's how you tell like an, an immature comedian from, from a mature one. Because an immature comedian is going to try impress, to impress the audience. But really mature, compelling comedians are okay with the audience laughing at them. Their goal is to take the audience on a journey and, and to get the audience to, to have sort of that you know, transformative experience, even if just momentarily, subtly, where they, where they go, oh, they arrive at the punchline. They arrive at the realization at the same time the comedian does, even if that is exposes that the comedian is not so clever or the comedian you know, sort of missed something or the comedian was in an embarrassing situation. And when I heard that, a light went on for me and I'm like, oh, crap. You know, I've spent the last how many ever years really wanting the Supreme Court, Court of Appeals. I want them to think I'm smart. So what I did, I went back to my desk, completely scrapped the, the brief I was writing all the way down to the citations I had, just basically went back to my notes and re-outlined it. And I said, if my goal is to get the court as, as comfortably and as easily as possible to this epiphany moment. That, that I had when I was trying to work out what, what our answer was, how it was going to be supported and make it comfortable and easy, but not try to impress the court, just try to be helpful. Like just try to help the court get where, where I needed them to be. I was so much prouder of, of the work that I ended up doing in that case than I was in any case before it, because I read the brief and the brief felt honest. I, I mean, you think about it practically, judges know that we are trying to persuade them. That's our job which means we can't go in like we're being used car salespeople. Like you can't go in and say, let me, have I got a judgment line for you? Let me, let me tell you how that's going. Judges want to get the right answer and your job is to help them get there. And you're not going to get there by charming them. So get your ego out of it. This is not, nothing we do is about us. It's about helping the client, uh, which sort of brings me to the third thing. 
and that's humanity. You know, I've I've done a little of everything now. Uh, I've done one appeal in a, in a death case. I try to stay out of death cases, but I've done plenty of murder cases, and then I've done everything down to traffic tickets. What what you learn is that they want someone to respectfully and and carefully get them as close to their goal as they can, or help them to understand why why they can't. But it's it's really easy to forget that the people are under tremendous stress, no matter how high or low the stakes may seem to you. And uh, this was years back. I had a guy who uh, who had pleaded guilty in municipal court to driving under the influence. He didn't know what he was doing, and he was just going to plead in superior court to uh, serious injury by vehicle because the DUI had led to it led to a wreck, and then the the woman who was involved in the wreck had complained that she had sustained some injury. He did not want a public defender, so he came in for arraignment that day, not bothered to qualify for a lawyer or anything, and the judge put him off until the end of the calendar. And so I was arguing the motion that day. I put up a fight. I lost. I probably should have lost, but I put up a fight and I went out of the courtroom and that same guy, the same guy said, I don't want a public defender came up to me and said, Hey, Hey, hey can I hire you? And I said, no, can't like tell the judge you want to apply for a public defender, fill out an application. So he went down and did that. And then it turns out he had that interesting problem. So he had the, uh, he was pleaded in, um, in municipal court to driving under the influence. And then that same driving under the influence was the predicate for the serious injury by vehicle he was charged with in superior court. So we talked through it. And first, what I got over was like, he just wanted to, to deal with it. But also he was angry because he thought he had dealt with it. And he didn't understand the double jeopardy clause. I mean, I, I hope everybody who, who took the crim pro listening to this thought that there's a double jeopardy problem there, that once you plead to the, the lesser offense, the state can't go after you on the greater one. So we had a long talk about it and said, look, you know, here's what I can do to help you. You're right to be mad. Because the government, I don't care if it's the city and the county, the city and the state, whoever, since the feds aren't involved, they can't go after you twice on this on this same nonsense. And if they wanted to get you for the, the serious injury by vehicle, they should have waited. It's not your fault. But what I can do is this. And if you will bear with me, I'm pretty sure I can help you. And I did. And we checked in every now and again. And I said, well, just bear with me. We're going to file this motion. We filed this plea in bar and argued that. The judge said, no, absolutely not going to deny the plea in bar. And I said, all right, fine. We'll take the appeal took the appeal, uh, asked for argument. The DA just would not concede and would not concede, went up in, in one of the great moments of my life. And uh, I, I really hope that my opponent, who's a friend of mine uh, and who's now on the bench, does not hear this. But um, in oral argument, and this was you know, uh, Judge Michael, who was no longer with us, sadly. But he was he was in his later years, even at that point, he was on this panel. So I had gotten up, I had, I had argued the Fifth Amendment, and, and the DA was getting up and saying, he was saying, well, no, because of this, that, and the other. And Judge Michael slams his cane down on the bench and gets up and says, you know, Mr. So-and-so, don't we just follow the Constitution? And, and that was sort of a really gratifying moment for me. And the client uh, wasn't there, but I told him about it later, and he, and he laughed. And like there was this moment of catharsis because it was pretty clear what the result was going to be. And, and the gratitude of his just, you know, writing it out with me. But a lot of it was, we started from a place of understanding and that, that humanity, I, I think, helped. And I think the last thing is self-care because it gets hard. It gets tremendously difficult. To be a lawyer, you sign up to carry other people's stress. You sign up to carry the, the memories and the experiences of the injustices you can't correct. It takes a toll on you. Lawyer cannot be the only thing 
you are. And you cannot be good to anybody. You do not have sort of the, that well or that reserve of mental, emotional energy to draw on, to fuel you, to get you through this stuff. So part of what you have to do, you have to set boundaries and you have to set boundaries where you can take care of yourself, where you can be good to the other people in your life. Justice Ellington, he's, he says this a lot. He's on our, I hope everybody knows that Justice Ellington is on our Supreme Court, but he says, the, he says there's life outside of the courtroom, get one. Uh, and, and I think that's true. You know, I, li- I like to cook. I like to cook outside. I like to set a fire and I like to sit around all night and, and slow cook a brisket or a pork shoulder or something like that. That's, that makes me happy. I also like to read things that aren't the law. I've got a, a, an almost three-year-old. He'll be three in February. And, and you know, he is my whole world. And uh, I, I like to take time for him. It, it, it honestly, that's the most sobering thing. He, at three years old, at two, two and three quarters, uh, <laughs> he does not care that I'm a lawyer. He does not care what the Constitution says. He does not care what the official code of Georgia says. He does not care what my clients are go, going through. He wants to sing the alphabet, or he wants to color, or he wants to do what he wants to do. And, and when he wants to do that, that's the most important thing in the world. And it's it's important to remember. But whatever it is, your, your self-care is, wherever, you, wherever the you is that's not a lawyer, protect that. Because if you don't, you're not going to have the reserve of energy or strength or compassion or humanity or anything to do what you need to do for your clients and for your practice and for yourself. So that's sort of the, the four things that, that I lit on. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you to our <laughs> guest, Brandon Bullard. As always, thank you for listening to The Good Lawyer. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Spotify or Apple Podcast or wherever you may be listening. And be sure to come back for our next episode. Until then, this is Wild D President Ron Daniels signing off. This podcast was created by the Young Lawyers Division of the State Bar of Georgia. It was produced, recorded, and edited by Jamie Goss. Special thanks to Ron Daniels and D. Sarah Young. Follow the YLD on social media at Georgia YLD. Call in with questions on the podcast at 404-526-8607.